1: With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week.
0: In our last episode, you heard me begin to tell Bob Mata of Defense Diaries about the conviction of Tony Sanborn in the murder of Jessica Briggs if you haven't yet listened to episode 203, please go back and listen to it. In it, you'll hear about the testimony that led to the conviction of Tony Sanborn and about his fight to prove his innocence since that time. In today's episode, you'll hear more about the result of that fight and even more wild truths that came to light thanks to the investigation done by Kevin Cady, who I spoke with to gain so much valuable information for last episode and for this one. Since Bob Mata, with whom I spoke during that first part of this episode, is very much focused on facts and just the facts, without getting into the speculations, I end my discussion with him with the end of our discussion of the case itself. However, I will then, alone, do a little more speculative exploring by describing other potential perpetrators that Kevin Katie, and I discussed. Again, before starting, I urge you to listen to our last episode for the first half of this case. In addition, you may be interested in following up by re-listening to episodes 197 and 198 on the Connecticut River Valley Killer, as well as episode 113 on Valerie Brooks to help form your opinion. Now let's jump right back in where we left off our discussion with Margaret Bragdon telling the court that it is now her belief that Hope Katie never saw what she originally said that she did because of the post-trial juror interviews, we obviously know that it was Hope Katie's testimony that had swayed the jury into convicting Sanborn, but there was even more discovered during this new investigation, Bob. For example, there was a box of evidence with everything from witness statements to police reports to a photo lineup. This was a lineup that Kevin Katie told me he was very interested in because it had been, according to him, discarded when no one who was shown the lineup chose Tony Sanborn as the perpetrator. This box of evidence was discovered in the attic of a retired detective's home, and Sanborn's attorneys argued that some of the evidence had never been turned over to defense lawyers in Sanborn's original trial. Here's why Kevin Cady explains why that photo lineup finally found in that box was of particular interest to him.
2: Uh, they were showing. Um, so back back then, uh, the main state pier, half of it was um, uh, was uh, part of Bath Iron Works. Bath Ironworks in in Maine, they build and repair navy navy destroyers and ships. They build them. It's one of the it's one of the three places that the navy has their ships built. Um, so the, and back then, Portland and then Bath bath ironworks and bath main is a huge shipyard where they lay the keel and all that stuff portland was a repair facility so when when uh, jessica briggs is seen on a on a bike with another guy going down the pier the night she's killed there's a bus taking night shift at, at midnight back to bath which is 25 minutes north of portland and they have all these people that saw this happen because they're looking at jessica briggs she was cute she was 16 mm-hmm. you know and she's wearing i don't know—wearing a skirt or whatever she whatever she was wearing right. and they and, and they were like wow look at look at her everybody look 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 all these guys right mm-hmm. and uh so they were showing uh the detectives were showing tony sanborn's um photo lineup so he's one of six and no one picked tony out. so they stopped showing it they just said well that entire bus nobody they said that no that he was not with her, that was not Tony Sanborn, so um you know when it comes to that that photo lineup and and that's what we were looking for when we went back to portland p d um we we couldn't find that was the one big thing I wanted to see was this photo lineup um, you know and the thing with photo lineups they can't be suggestive everybody has to look sort of the same you know mm-hmm. no one can have a tattoo on their, on their forehead mm-hmm. you know there's, there's there's rules to those those, those lineups and we, we could never find it and, and then um, you know it turned out to be at Jim Daniels' house
0: but So Sanborn's defense also uncovered copies of interviews with others of Sanborn's friends with a note on top that read, and this is according to an article for WGME Channel 13, which is a CBS affiliate, quote, statements not sent as discovery per request of Detective Young, March 26, 90, to be changed to narrative reports, end quote. Now, Bob, my understanding is that that would mean basically full statements would be condensed down to short blurbs paraphrased by law enforcement. Yeah,
3: it's, it's literally written by the cop. So, like in the Gacy case, for all five of Gacy's confessions, none of them were taped. None of them were handwritten by Gacy. They were paraphrased by a cop. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a major difference in terms of somebody writing something out by hand and a cop saying, okay, well, this is what I remember them saying based on my notes. You know what I'm, it's, it's a very different thing. And, you know, yes. it's getting filtered through the mind of the cop. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's, they're two completely different things. So yeah, you were right. Like narratives are basically just what the cops remember from the notes of what was said
0: to them by a witness. Right. So Sanborn's attorneys, they appealed to the Brady Doctrine, named after the Supreme Court case, which, again, from my understanding, basically says that in a trial, the prosecution has a duty to give the defense all evidence that could help the defendant. This would obviously have included the information that was found in the officer's attic and the information that the main witness's credibility could have been undermined. Right. They have this the
3: fact that she was blind obligation. Legally. Right.
0: <laughs> that they knew. Right. Then there's the recanting of the statements made also by the other two witnesses in the original trial. So the sometime roommate, Jerry Rossi, he recanted, saying that he had pinned the murder on Sanborn because he was threatened by police that if he didn't, they would arrest him instead. And that if he went along with what they said, mm-hmm. he would get immunity. And then the other friend, Glenn Brown, he's now stating that he was threatened with charges in an unrelated case if he didn't implicate Sanborn, Right. So I mean, there's, there's all everybody is saying, I, I, I lied, originally. Right. I, yeah, so this guy
3: got railroaded, completely railroaded.
0: Absolutely. And recall that. He was the one who told police that Sanborn and Briggs had rekindled their relationship the night before the murder, but that they had argued and Jessica had left. And that's what gave motive that Tony was mad and he was looking for her. So in the original trial, law enforcement produced a written statement from Brown implicating Sanborn. Here is Kevin Cady explaining the problem with that written statement.
2: So, so I, I, I interviewed Glenn Brown um, and, and Glenn. I, I had a written statement. It was actually type it was typewritten and there was no handwritten statement. But well, what would happen back then? probably they still do it at portland media i don't know but they'd bring in a uh, stenographer and the stenographer would take notes and then they'd drop a a, uh, a st- you know a two-page statement that says whatever you know i'm i'm giving this statement you know of my own free will blah 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 right. you know this what this is what i have to say and you sign it well it w- this wasn't signed and when i when i showed it to him he said well I didn't write a statement because back then I couldn't read or write. I'm like, how do you make how do you make this stuff up? He said, look, I, I didn't write a statement. So if they typed a statement, I I never saw it and I never signed one, and that's not signed. But he he did he did testify uh, against Tony, saying that Tony at some point um, they were together and said. Uh, Tony pulled a knife out and said, "I'll, you know, I, I, I don't know what I don't, I can't remember now what he, what was said, you know, attributed to, to Tony by mm-hmm. Glenn Brown, but it had to do with I stabbed Jessica with this knife or worse to that effect." Mm-hmm. And he says, "Look, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, I was, I was, uh, he had charges pending. We're going back to how police work was done. Uh, you tell us something good, we'll help you out. Mm-hmm. And 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 lo and behold, um, you know, you're going to testify." And um, your charges will be reduced or, 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 or dismissed. I don't. I don't know what happened with them, but I probably, you know, it. it they went away. And and he said, look, I'm. I'm gonna. I, I'll testify right now. I lied. I committed perjury. They can charge me with it. You know, in twenty. In. in uh, 2017. They charged me with it, but I
0: lied. In fact, according to reporter Kelly Wheel, Brown was, quote, functionally illiterate at the time and had never read the written version of the report the police claimed he made, end quote. They had a whole list of other suspects, everybody from Uh, FBI behavioral experts actually came in and they said, no, this looks like the work of a serial killer. There was another Portland street kid who had been infatuated with Jessica. There was an incarcerated male who admitted to the murder. Um, There was someone who had assaulted Hope Katie, actually, in the days after Jessica Briggs' murder. He had assaulted her with a razor blade. And then, you know, the fact that the blood at the scene doesn't match Sanborn, the hair doesn't match Sanborn, neither of the semen samples. It seems pretty clear that there is reasonable doubt. Yeah, definitely. So the defense closed by asking the judge to set bail after hearing all of the testimonies that they had presented, but without yet hearing statements made by the prosecution or testimony from the detectives or the former assistant attorney general. And Fairfield, Sanborn's defense, she stated, quote, Mr. Sanborn has been in custody for 27 years for a murder he didn't commit. Hope Katie was their only witness. My burden here is, is there a likelihood of success? This is the state's case, is hope, Katie, that's it. So to keep a man in jail for one second longer just perpetuates this miscarriage of justice that has happened to this wonderful human being. He is deserving of bail. I would urge the court to admit him to bail right now. So this stops now, end quote. Wow. Love that. Judge Wheeler took a recess to read the affidavits. When she returned, she made the following statement, quote, I do find that there is a reasonable likelihood of success on the petition, and I, I find that for purposes of bail. Because here we have had a 13 and 14 year old child who was unstable in DHHS's custody, a runaway, someone who should not have been interviewed by the police without her guardian. And a guardian was not, her guardian was Miss Bragdon, and she was not involved in the interviews. And quite frankly, I wouldn't have wanted to put go forward on a case based on her testimony, and it has been conceded that she is and was a material witness in the case. She's the only eyewitness in this case. She's the only, well, I think it's fair to say the only hard evidence against Mr. Sanborn, and I found her today to be credible. I found her still to be very nervous, and as for her eyesight, I find that she did have significant eyesight problems back when she at the time, all of these events were going on. She wore glasses. She, I believe, Miss Bragdon told the state, either through the police or through the district, through the Attorney General's office, that there were eye problems, and that was not disclosed to the defense, so that the defense could not properly cross-examine an eyewitness on something that, as crucial as her eyesight. Now, in terms of setting bail, I've had reports of Mr. Sanborn as an ideal prisoner, I don't know how he was able to maintain, I don't know if I brought it with me, I don't know how he was able to maintain himself through his 27 years of imprisonment, but I read, I will read from a letter from Garrett Vale, who worked in Maine State Prison and knew Mr. Sanborn for 11 years, and he says, what is clearer and clearer all the time to me is that Tony Sanborn is a man of quiet courage, immense patience, and profound integrity. It's the only reason I can understand now. Accepting that is how I can understand how he survived over all these years. End quote. Judge Wheeler then stated, quote, Quite frankly, when I walked into the courtroom and saw a middle aged man sitting in Mr. Sanborn's place and knowing that this happened when he was 17 years old, this is only a bail hearing, so I cannot apologize to you, Mr. Sanborn, at this time. All I can say is that there is a reasonable likelihood that you will succeed on the petition, and I'm going to set bail end quote. All right. And she set it at $25,000 cash or surety. Sanborn said to Judge Wheeler at the bail hearing, quote, to have the guts that you did, and I don't know where your stance is or what you believe in, and I know at this stage you can't tell me, but thank you for being someone, because I didn't believe in anything in the system, so thank you, end quote. To which Justice Wheeler responded, quote, thank you. I understand you've lost your faith in the justice system. And my only goal is to give everyone a sense that justice was done and to give everyone a fair trial, fair hearing. And I hope you'll leave here with that conviction today. End quote. According to an interview by Maine Public with the original prosecutor, Pam Ames, she was in utter shock saying, quote, I am completely aghast that a judge would only hear part of the story and not even know the facts of the case. The fact that the judge did not hear from any witness from the state on the bail argument is completely unheard of and unprecedented, end quote. The state also felt as though that statement from the judge crossed the line, asking that she recuse herself because of the statement, something she declined to do, because the state said that this seeming apology, quote, created a perception that she had already decided in favor of Sanborn, end quote.
3: Sounds like a good judge to me.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And, of course, it, Pam Ames, she says, I'm in shock, you know, that a judge would set bail and not hear any witnesses from the state is unprecedented and unheard of. What
3: else do you need to hear? Right. right? Like, what right. else do you need to hear? Like, honestly, uh, man, I cannot stand prosecutors like that, like just like the, just they're going to die on that hill. They'd rather have an innocent. Per- like she's hearing it, too. Like either it's one of two things, either Ames knew it then, which makes her an awful human being, or she's hearing it now and just rejecting it because she doesn't want to, you know, be cast in the, in the light of, oh yeah, I put an innocent guy in prison for 27 years. Either way, own it. You know, we're all human. We make mistakes. Sometimes they get the wrong guy. Own it. It, it, Like, quit perpetuating the nightmare. I I just, I'll never get it with prosecutors why they do that. And it's more often than not. It really is. I, I can't, I have no
0: stomach for it. Yeah. Well, the judge ends up not recusing herself. Good for her. And with this setting of bail, Sanborn became the first convicted murderer ever released on bail in the state of Maine. When it came time to determine what to do with Sanborn, Sanborn accepted a plea deal. According to reporter Fred Bever from Maine Public, quote, in an apparent concession that the original sentence was not just, the plea deal included an unusual statement from prosecutors that in light of U.S. case law, Sanborn's original sentence amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. Sanborn's sentence was reduced to time served, which when... Prison good conduct credit was factored in, which I, I didn't even know there was good behavior credit. I didn't. I didn't know what that was. I'll admit oh, yeah. that. But with it, it amounted to the equivalent of forty-two years, three months, and nine days. The following was Judge Wheeler's final statement: "Quote, so, and I recognize that too that that this is not going to be very comforting to the victim's family, but I." All I can say is that my focus is on making sure that justice is achieved. And any decision I make is going to, well. there will be somebody who's going to be unhappy with what I decide and somebody who will be happy with what I decide. Very rarely do I make decisions that both people like. And to the family, I'm sorry that this may indeed reopen the question of who murdered Jessica, but if that's justice, so be it, end quote. And it feels strange to say that justice takes different forms like it does in this case. And I'm curious about what this means for Jessica Briggs. Since Sanborn took a plea deal that he can never go back to prison for these charges, no probation even, but it is still on his record. What does this mean in terms of testing evidence and convicting someone else in Jessica Briggs' murder? What does that justice look like? In a case like this, where it seems there was a miscarriage of of justice. And and so he's he's being freed finally after all these years, but it's still on his record. And so case right. closed, I guess, in terms of the law. So in a way, it seems just that he is now free, but in a way it doesn't, because if he didn't commit 100%. the crime, someone else did. And so what does that ultimately mean?
3: That Jessica Briggs has not gotten justice and this guy. So, yeah, I mean, it's like you have cases like the West Memphis Three, same thing. You know, they all got out. They all did Alford pleas where they're basically saying, "Okay, we're not admitting guilt, but we acknowledge the fact that the state had enough evidence to get a conviction. And, you know, they're opting to say, all right, I'm choosing freedom because i can't trust the 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 judicial system i can't trust the courts that's evident i've been in here for 27 years i'm not willing to take that chance again i don't want a new trial you know because like ultimately that's what it would have boiled down to had they right. they followed through with the petition all the way had he not decided to plead it out and take the deal it would have gone to a new trial and you know a guy who's done 27 years is like man do i do i want right. to take the shot at this y- you know and it's like yeah it like the question is, is has justice been served and the answer is no it hasn't right. i mean i'm thankful that sanborn's out it clearly sounds like he was 100 percent railroaded y- you know but it, in the meantime whoever killed jessica briggs is still out there and right. you know i mean we always go back to the victims on this and there's multiple victims there's obviously Tony Sanborn and there's obviously Jessica Briggs and she never got justice and he never right. got justice, you know? So it's a sad case all around, but you know, and it and it's not as uncommon as you'd think it would be. And it's just one of those things where, you know, we have a, we're seeing them all the time, you know, we're seeing it with yeah. Adnan Syed, you know, that case mm-hmm. is going on. That's still very much active. You're seeing it with Michael Peterson, you know, like with the staircase guy, and, <laughs> You know, and it's like one of those things where, you know, he took an Alfred plea, even though he didn't trust the system, he wasn't willing to go back and you still have his family members or her family members, his ex-wife or his, his past wife's family saying, I think you killed her, you know, because the the people like the victims and their, their families, they rely on law enforcement completely, you know, whatever they say, Hey, look, you know, th- this is, we, we've got an ironclad case. We know we got the right guy. And then that becomes their reality, you know? And, and it's almost impossible to get them to think anything other than what law enforcement and the, the prosecutor told them originally. We got the right guy. Justice right. has been served. You know what I mean? And like trying to go back. So yeah, it's a sad, it's a sad thing, but you know, I'm thankful that he's out. And, you know, I think that there's probably enough people behind him that he's going to be able to live a pretty decent life. Like, he's not, like, going to come out and not have any any ability to be able to do things, even with that conviction still on his record, because there's so much powerful evidence that he's innocent and he's got right. so many good people behind him, you know, that I think hopefully he'll have a decent life, but
0: you never Yeah, know. yeah he's got, he does have a a strong support system. So thank you so much, Bob, for joining me, for helping me work my way through this case and all the legalities of it. No problem. So if you'd like to check out more from Bob and I promise all of his content is phenomenal, make sure you check out the show notes for where you can find all of his projects.
3: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me.
4: I don't know if it's been the same for you, but it feels like the price of everything keeps rising and my bank account keeps shrinking. Even when I had money passively sitting in investment accounts, those funds rarely rise at the rate of inflation, leaving me feeling like I was in the same boat. All of my money was going somewhere, but never coming back to me.
0: The age of stock picking is here. With towering inflation and elevating interest rates, sticking your money in a passive market fund just isn't going to get you what it used to. But it doesn't mean you have to abandon the market. There are still ways to invest for the future. You just need to know where to look, which is where the Motley Fool comes in. The Motley Fool Stock Advisor Service highlights two stocks each and every month for members to add to their portfolios, and it literally has paid to listen to them. Historically, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10, 2023, and listeners of Coffee and Cases can now access Motley Fool Stock Advisor for just $89 for their first year. That's a full $110 off the list price. What are you waiting for? Visit fool.com forward slash coffee and cases to start your investing journey today.
4: Did you know that dehydration is the leading cause of daytime fatigue? I was shocked to learn that even mild dehydration can cause headaches, muscle weakness, and brain fog. But luckily, there's a solution, CURE.
0: CURE believes that hydration should be simple and effective, but also clean and natural. That's why they use only the highest quality plant-based ingredients and avoid any artificial or harmful additives. They're committed to transparency and honesty. All of their ingredients are clearly listed on their website and packaging, and they're always happy to answer any questions or concerns. Ready to combat dehydration? Track here
4: today and feel the difference for yourself. Use code COFFEEINCASES for 20% off your
0: order. Now I'm going to begin discussing other potential theories as to who murdered Jessica Briggs, and they are numerous. If we believe that Jessica Briggs was not killed by Tony Sanborn, then someone else did it. Sadly, in the eyes of the law, this case is closed, but I'd like to at least share some of the other potential theories. The individuals that I'm going to talk about, or many of them at least, are individuals who were known to law enforcement, even while their laser focus was on Sanborn. Ultimately, while I can't pretend to know who killed Jessica Briggs, my question is, shouldn't the fact that we have all of these other potential theories have meant that there was reasonable doubt from the beginning? Could one of these individuals be responsible? Alternative theory number one. Years after Sanborn was found guilty, another member of the Street Kids confessed To Jessica's murder when interviewed by the FBI. This individual was a federal inmate from the same crowd as Sanborn and Briggs, and he claimed to have killed Briggs with a rug-cutting tool before tossing her into the ocean. Then he later recanted, saying he wanted to increase his sentence to move to a different part of the prison, and that that's why he gave a false confession. I actually spoke about this theory with Kevin Cady, and he too believes that this individual was lying to see what he could get from it, and Katie believes this because when this claim of killing Jessica Briggs didn't get him transferred, this individual killed his cellmate. So the transfer he wanted to happen did happen. Here is what Kevin Cady had to say about theory number one: the confession.
2: So he, so he's being interviewed in in New Jersey in a federal prison by the FBI about a serial killer that's 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 in uh, Maine and New Hampshire. So, so he he then says, um, I, "I want to get something off my chest. I killed Jessica Briggs. I did it. I used a rug cutter. Blah blah blah, um, and uh, threw her off the pier. And 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 I did it. So um, he that, that gets
3: forwarded. God, when was that? 2009, maybe. Mm-hmm. That's when that
2: took place. And he um, it, it was forwarded to the detectives through the attorney general's office. Bill Stokes." Who's now a, who's now a state supreme court uh, or a, uh, a superior court judge was an assistant attorney general back then, and he got the he got so he got the information from the FBI and said Portland police please investigate this, and they they never did they they never looked mm-hmm. into it and nothing was ever done there was a follow up by Bill Stokes by you know, I've seen the emails did you look into this uh, tell me tell me what, what the outcome is and it was just never. You know, that was never a priority, and it was never looked into. He ended up, and I can't, God, I can't remember this guy's name, but he, the inmate, ends up um, in, um, he's in federal prison, and he goes to uh, Springfield, Missouri, which is a a medical facility, detention facility, because he's got some sort of medical issue, and he, so so then he decides that if, and this comes from his attorney, and, and this, I, I read the, the, the court transcripts, he he kills, he murders his cellmate because he knows if he goes to Terre Haute, Indiana, on death row, he'll get his own cell and his own TV. He killed, he killed his, his cellmate, so he, he, he's put on trial, federal Uh-oh. trial for that, goes to, uh, gets convicted, and and goes to uh, he's in terror, as far as I know unless he's been he's been executed he's on death row in, in Terre Haute Indiana he knew Tony he, he was with Tony in uh, Tony Samborn in the main state prison they had a kind of a um, they had at one point they almost got into a fight in the you know in the yard or wherever they are so uh, yeah um, it, it, interesting uh, and, and as part of the penalty phase uh, the jurors heard. That he had confessed to this Jessica Briggs homicide, and was so. So, as part of his penalty phase, they're deciding: Are we going to execute you? And that was that. That information was given to them, and they and they. Now, what weight they gave it, who knows? But that right. was, yeah. Do
0: I think he did it? I don't. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I. I don't think he did it. But mm-hmm. um, but that was never. So that was another another angle. Now, you know, I can only go so far as
2: to, as to look into w- what took place. Uh, you know, what what did he say? Um, we talked to his attorney um, at the time. Um, I think he probably would have let us talk to him if we if we went out there. but my my job wasn't so much to solve that homicide right. but it, but it was to show that to- Tony Samborn didn't do it, so mm-hmm. I could I could only go so so
0: far. Alternative theory number two. Jessica's friend told law enforcement that an unidentified man, Had threatened her with a knife the day before the murder took place. What's more, Hope Katie told police about a man named Dusty who had assaulted her in the days after Jessica's murder and had followed her around and actually attacked her with a razor blade. Hope said that he took her to a basement and cut her arms with a razor. Obviously, I bring up these potential perpetrators here the threatening with the knife and the man named Dusty with the razor blade because of the use of the sharp objects as the weapon of choice and that both happened around the time of Jessica Briggs's murder and in the same location. Former Assistant Attorney General Pam Ames was asked about why this other person, especially the named person who assaulted Hope Katie, was never considered a suspect. She replied, quote, I still don't see a connection between her being assaulted and her witnessing a homicide, end quote. Retired Portland Detective James Daniels testified that he took written notes about what Hope had told him about Dusty, but that he never put that information into his report. Detective Daniels noted, quote, It wasn't made part of the case. It was part of my notes that were available for anyone to look at, but I didn't write a report and turn it in as something discoverable, end quote. Defense attorney Amy Fairfield asked, quote, The fact that she, meaning Hope, the key witness against Tony Sanborn in the trial that convicted him, thought somebody else was the murderer other than Tony Sanborn? You don't think that's relevant? To which Detective Daniels replied that he thought Dusty and the Briggs murder were two separate incidents. Alternative theory number three. Although this potential theory is short, it bears noting. Yet another friend, Robert Miller, stated that he tried to come to the police on three separate occasions to tell detectives that he had heard someone threaten to kill Jessica Briggs, only to be told all three times by law enforcement that they already had their subject. And that subject was Tony Sanborn. Alternative theory number four. FBI criminal profiler John Philpin looked into the Jessica Briggs murder. In his professional opinion, he believes that there is a sexual motivation to the murder and that her death is possibly the work of a serial killer. In his notes, he writes of the killer attacking Briggs with his right hand Now, that may seem a small detail, but interestingly, it directly contradicts Jerry Rossi's statement, the fact that Philpin believes the killer is right-handed. You see, Rossi said that Sanborn, quote, grabbed her by the hair, slashed with his left hand, and stabbed her 11, 12 times, end quote. And, you know, this theory, that it was potentially a serial killer we'll break down into several theories because there are actually a few serial killers who may have potentially been linked to Jessica Briggs. This first alternative theory, and theory number four, is one of those, and it's one that Maggie brought us a case about just a few weeks back in episodes 197 and 198, The Connecticut River Valley Killer. In fact, not one, but two FBI or retired FBI criminal profilers believe that Briggs may have been the victim of this particular serial killer. Those two profilers are Greg McCrary and none other than John Philpin, the same FBI profiler who investigated the Connecticut River Valley case that Maggie brought up in that episode, According to Matt Burns' article in the Portland Press-Herald from June 21, 2017, titled Two Crime Profilers for Anthony Sanborn Jr., say clues suggest a serial killer. McCrary believes in the link because he, quote, described Briggs's killing as sexual in nature and as strikingly similar to the 1987 death of a Vermont woman believed to be the victim of the Connecticut River Valley killer. That serial killer is believed responsible for seven deaths between 1978 and 1987, end quote. What's more, that killer has never been caught. So who's to say that the killing couldn't have continued past 1987? McCrary went on to say that Briggs's injuries, specifically the severing of her carotid artery, the near disembowelment, and puncturing of her jugular vein, quote, reflect an unusually severe underlying psychopathology typically evidenced by serially violent offenders. Therefore, there is a likelihood that Miss Briggs was the victim of a serial killer, end quote. McCrary further wrote, as mentioned in that same article, about the connections between Barbara Agnew, a known victim of the Connecticut River Valley killer, and Jessica Briggs, saying, quote, Agnew sustained a strikingly similar pattern of injuries to that of Miss Briggs. While it would be premature to link this case without further in-depth analysis, these are the types of crimes that, in the interest of justice, should be cross-referenced and analyzed to determine whether or not they could be linked, end quote. I can also see a connection with victim Kathy Milliken that Maggie told us about, who had been stabbed more than 20 times to the neck and to the abdomen, the two sites of the worst wounds to Briggs as well. Recall that there were semen samples in Briggs's case that have yet to be linked to anyone, And we know that the Connecticut River Valley killer was known to sexually assault his victims as well. Alternative theory number five is another serial killer. This one is Glenn Brown Rogers. Glenn Rogers is believed to have been in Portland at the time with either a circus or a traveling carnival. Rogers was known to have used his position within the carnival to travel the country, explaining his name of... cross-country killer. He has at least five known victims, but Rogers' sister once told a reporter that her brother spoke of killing at least 55. Rogers himself claims a number upwards of 70. His most well-known victims, or potential victims, are ones based on claims he has made, rather than solid proof. You see, Rogers claims that he was hired to kill Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Yes, that Nicole Brown Simpson, O.J. Simpson's ex-wife. Most of Rogers' victims had been stabbed to death. You may remember his name as one theory that was thrown out in the Valerie Brooks case that we covered in episode 113. However, I questioned his involvement in that particular case since all of his known murders occurred between 1993 and 1995. Valerie's case happened on December 31st, 1990. If he is linked to Jessica Briggs, her case would have been even earlier, in 1989. And I cannot tell from the images of Jessica, as I haven't really seen one in vivid color But Rogers seemed to gravitate toward redheads for his victims. What makes him interesting in this particular case is that some law enforcement believe that Glenn Rogers may have actually committed some of the murders that were attributed to Gary Ridgway, known as the Green River Killer. Could this be another such case of mistaken identity where Rogers committed a murder, but it is being potentially attributed to the Connecticut River Valley Killer? After all, Rogers was touring with the circus between 1989 and 1993. A final serial killer alternative theory, alternative theory number six, is Richard Mark Evonitz. Evonitz was first on the radar of law enforcement because of his history of arrests from exposing himself and masturbating in front of women. However, he then progressed to murder. While most of his known murder victims were from the late 1990s to the early 2000s, when he was finally caught, founder of the University of Virginia Law School's Innocence Project, Deirdre Inright, believes Ivonitz may have been responsible for other murders prior to his known ones. In fact, there's one murder she believes he is responsible for that took place around 30 minutes away from the Briggs murder. And less than a year earlier. On July 6, 1988, a young 12-year-old named Sarah Margaret Cherry was babysitting at a home in rural Bowdoin, Maine. She had been abducted, bound, sexually assaulted with sticks, stabbed, and then strangled with a scarf. Her body was left there in the woods where it would be discovered a few days later some witnesses recalled seeing a white toyota corolla in the area where her body was later discovered while dennis dechain was convicted of her murder he has always maintained his innocence and continued to appeal the conviction despite the conviction enright believes that ivonitz may have actually been the killer he had access to a white toyota corolla like the one described the MO of the crime fit with Ivonitz, and Ivonitz was nearby as he served as a sonar tech on the USS Kelch with the U.S. Navy. That boat was based in Portland, Maine, from May 8, 1988 until May 31, 1989, because the boat was, according to an August 7, 2022 article by Colin Woodard for CentralMain.com undergoing a refit at the Bath Ironworks facility. Now, I'm hoping that name triggers something in your brain because that is the very same pier from under which Jessica Briggs's body was pulled. While the MO was different for Briggs than for Yvonne's other victims, you can see why many believe he is at least a potential suspect. I spoke with Kevin Cady not only about motive, but also about some of these theories. Specifically, I asked him whether he thought the murder of Briggs were sexually motivated or motivated by rage. Here was his response.
2: Yeah, definitely act of rage. So um, I know that uh, we had had experts, uh,
1: behavioral, FBI type behavioral Mm -hmm. experts look at this. This,
2: this, this crime scene, and the and the and the evisceration, and that her throat's literally, all, she's almost decapitated, mm-hmm. and she's and she, her uh, one eye is black, is uh, swollen up black and blue, um, so it was it, it, it wasn't a, a a first time mm-hmm. blitz, it was a blitz assault, and she fought back, mm-hmm. you know, you could there was and it was there was all uh, hair, there was hair in her. Uh,
0: between her fingers okay going to a male
2: so um, so yeah I, I it was it was it was brutal um
0: and I guess because of what you said, how it was kind of clear that this wasn't someone's first time. I, I did read that. I think his name was John Philpin, the criminal profiler. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, that he believed that it was the work of a serial killer. And I think mm-hmm. he was thinking about the Connecticut River Valley killer, I think, was the specific one he was thinking about. But do you think there's any possibility for a theory like that?
2: Well, one of the one of the things that piqued my interest is um, is there was a navy ship in
0: port, um, and I'm hearing so so there's there's,
2: there's a book uh, that's, that's written by Diane Fanning, and it's called Into the Water, and it, and it has to do with um, the uh, this murder um, suspect Mark Richard Mark Ivonitz. E. E V O N I T Z, and he's from Spotsylvania, Pennsylvania. Well, he was in the Navy, and in 1989, right about that time, he was in Portland because his ship was in Portland being decommissioned because because his ship was going to be uh, given to the Philippines. And in, in looking
4: in looking at time frames, um, the ship the ship had had left, um, but it doesn't mean he that he wasn't on it. Um, right, because it was being decommissioned. And he was a sonar man, so you don't need a sonar man on the ship if the ship's decommissioned. Right, um, but uh, but
2: there's, there's there is this uh, this this book by Diane Fanning, and I've talked to her. Um, he so what he did is he um, he murdered two or three girls. He abducted and murdered two or three girls, and all of his victims went into the water. Into a, mm. some, some sort of water, which is which is which is interesting. Um, there's a, a one one girl. The Howie he ended up killing himself. Uh, he got chased. He was down in I think maybe Sarasota, Florida, and uh, the sheriff's office chased him to arrest him, and he killed himself.
0: But he said he killed he killed killed others besides the ones he was uh, mm.
2: he was known for. Um,
0: like that's was similar, you know, like with yeah. the...
2: No, it wasn't.
0: It wasn't that that blitz type, okay. you know, evisceration and and throat slashing.
2: So, um, you know, so he's, you know, there's there's a uh, there, there, well, there's also uh, uh, some thought process that Glenn Rogers was in Portland at the time because he was with the Barnum and Bailey Circus. So Glenn Rogers is in he's in prison in Florida now, but he did a, a slew of uh, of murders, and there's you know, I, it's it's hard to. You know, pin, pin down whether he was actually here. I, I heard he was here, and you know, the train comes in, and they get the elephants to go up the street, and you know, and he's he's in Portland. But um,
0: yeah, so uh, again, my, my job wasn't to solve the crime. Right, it was right. It was to, to show that, that
2: did Tony do it or not do it. You know, and, and if the evidence showed that he did it, it would be that's the way it is. Um, but uh, it was it was a, it was it was a brutal murder.
0: Alternative theory number seven. This theory was brought up as well in my conversation with Katie that there had been another male at the youth center who seemed to have an unhealthy obsession with Jessica Briggs. Might that obsession and her lack of response have prompted an attack? Here's what Katie said about this potential theory.
2: The other um, viable suspect is... um, there was a kid. He was a, he was a juvenile at the time, and he was in the youth center with uh, with Jessica and Tony. He had gotten out, but at the but but what he had in his mind, or he was he was dating Jessica, and he thought that they were going they were engaged, even though they're sixteen, oh. and they're going to get married when she gets out. Oh. well, he runs into her a week before the the, the, the murder. He runs into her on Congress Street in Portland at a Seven Eleven. And he's buying something. He, he sees her and says, "Hey, you're supposed to be my my my, uh, my fiance. When did you get out of the youth center?" She goes, "Oh, I got out a month and a half ago." And <laughs> and and he was and he, he went he went off the deep end. Wow. Uh,
0: and, and so they so when they um, when when he was he was
2: interviewed and the my recollection now is 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 that under his mattress there was a smashed portrait of uh, Jessica and he also had blood on his sneakers that we could never determine
1: how he said he cut his finger or cut himself shaving I don't know what, what his excuse mm-hmm. was but he had but he had blood on,
0: on his sneakers and we could never we could never determine
2: how that blood was ever tested or whether it was um, eliminated as being Jessica's.
0: Speaking of the main youth center alternative theory number eight is the worker from the center whom Tony had seen in the car with Jessica Briggs that prompted the breakup. So far as I know, he wasn't even considered a possible suspect by law enforcement. Again, here's what Katie said about this theory as well. To
2: to, to lend credence to this, word gets out somehow prior to this murder, uh, and, and this guy is investigated by Department of Corrections. the Maine State Department of Corrections investigators figure out that, yes, this is what he's doing. He did it, and they had forwarded uh, all the the investigative reports and conclusions to the uh, Cumberland County DA's office for prosecution. I've I've read it. I I read the reports. Mm -hmm. I read
0: the reports that they sent to the DA's office, and it was literally like eight weeks before the murder. So, I'm like, well, Why wasn't this guy interviewed? Right, and and if he was, where's the reports that say he was interviewed? And he
2: was in, and he was in Nevada, or he was in California when the murder happened. I mean, where, where is that?
0: Then, of course, we have a final theory, theory number nine, of the man seen riding bikes with Jessica Briggs by the busload of people on the night she was murdered. While I do not have a physical description of the man to compare with all of our alternative theories. We do know from Katie that the lineup was created after that sighting and that none of the individuals on the bus identified Sanborn as the man they had seen. Could the man have been one of these other potential theories? Without someone coming forward with memories or information, I fear that we may never know. Just as Bob and I discussed, justice looks different in this case than we normally expect. It isn't tidy. It isn't clear. And as of right now, there don't seem to be any answers nor guarantees. Other than that, there is definitely more work that needs to be done. And that we have a duty to continue to push for answers. If you have any information to share concerning the Briggs murder please contact the Portland, Maine Police Department at 207-874-8479.
1: Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon.
0: Stay together.
1: Stay safe.
0: We'll We'll see see you you next week. week.
4: If you've been listening to our show for more than one episode, then you probably know about my love for animals. What I don't often talk about is the difficulty of meeting all their nutritional needs. Trust me, not all dog food is created equal. But we're about to solve that problem for
0: you. It's called Nom Nom. In Nom Nom, you can actually see proteins and vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. And ordering it is the easiest way to take the guesswork out of feeding your dog the best. Nom Nom meals are pre-portioned for your dog's exact caloric needs. Isn't it time to feel good about the food you're feeding your dog? Order Nom Nom today. Go to
4: TryNom.com slash Coffee in Cases and get 50% off your first order plus free shipping. And Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. That means if your dog doesn't love fresh, delicious meals, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom.